we praise the Lord. Let all that we are praise the Lord. We want to praise the Lord as long as we live. So help us, God, to sing praises to you even until our dying breath. God, remind us not to put our confidence in powerful people, for there is no help for us there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth, and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord our God. You, O God, made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, and you keep every promise forever. You give justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. Our Lord frees the prisoners. Our Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Our Lord lifts up those who are weighed down, and our Lord loves. Our Lord protects the foreigners among us. You, our Lord, care for the orphans and the widows, and you frustrate the plans of the wicked. You, our Lord, will reign forever, and you will be our God throughout the generations. And so tonight, in this place, your church, we praise the Lord. Amen. Who was the person that you thought of? My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here at the 8th Street Church. And um, in, uh, for this month, we are looking at different saints in our lives. We're actually in the middle of a series that we're calling Saints, uh, Models, Mentors, Examples, and Exemplars. And uh, Saints includes people like uh, Ignatius of Loyola, and people like Martin Luther, and people like John Wesley, but they also include people that perhaps uh, are only known to you. And so over the next few minutes, I want us to remember and honor those saints together if we could. And as we do that, I want to invite you to turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I have some friends who have Bibles. We actually purchased some Bibles in Spanish. Those are the green Bibles. If your heart language is Spanish and you want to read in Spanish and you need a Bible, just raise your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible either in Spanish or in English. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep this as your own, uh, but if you just need it for the evening, I invite you to use it and then uh, leave it on your, uh, on your seat, and somebody will pick it up after, after the service. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, uh, starting with verse 1, and here at our church, we, uh, we stand as we honor the reading of God's Word, and so I invite you to stand and hear the word of the Lord from Saint Paul to Saint Timothy. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead, when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Do not be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given to you. As for me, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. 
As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, with the lo- which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this month we're honoring those who in some way or another have acted as saints in our lives. I've said it before, I'll say it again. A saint is somebody who is an example, a mentor, a model, or, or an exemplar. And this month, we want to be focusing on those who are in history and those who can be read about and those who can be studied, but we also want to focus on those who cannot be Googled. You could not look up their name if you wanted to. Those saints, maybe more than the famous ones, have impacted our lives in significant ways. It's our task and our duty, it's our Christian job to listen to stories of saints and to learn about them because those stories shape our stories for the good. And Christians remember the saints. We have always been a people for 2,000 years that have remembered the saints because it is important for us to continue to learn from the giants of faith. And maybe they're giants and, and, and not everybody knows who they are. So this would be a really appropriate time to pause on Veterans Day when we remember those who have served to defend and protect our freedoms, and we've said this a couple of times, but um, those in the military know better than the rest of us what it means to take an oath, and they know what it means to be willing to give their lives for a greater cause. So we're grateful for those in our congregation that have served, Andy Fritch, John Ledford and Charlie Seitz and Jared Seitz, we, we, thank you for, we thank you for your service. Thank you so much. We're really, we're really grateful to you. Uh, when I moved to Oklahoma City in 2005, I was in the middle, I, I was only about 27 years old, and I was in the middle of reading this book, uh, called Working the Angles. And Working the Angles is a, is a book written by Eugene Peterson. I've talked about him many times. It's just simply a book on how to be a pastor. I was only 27. I knew nothing. And uh, what Peterson says are there are these, there are these three angles or these three things that a pastor in ministry must work through. The first thing is a pastor must be a person of prayer. The second thing is the pastor must be a person that is immersed in Scripture. And then his third angle is the angle of mentoring. Now, I really understood as a pastor the prayer and the Scripture part. That's like going to Sunday school knowing that the answer is always Jesus. What is a pastor supposed to do? Pray, read the Bible. And, and I, it seemed obvious that those were the things that I had to focus on. I knew I needed these essentials in my life like prayer and scripture, and to me that was a given. But Peterson, this third angle, mentoring, was not what I thought it was going to be. I had made assumptions before I read the book that mentoring meant that I needed to go find a person that I needed to mentor. I needed to go find somebody that I was going to pour my life into and invest in someone else. But Peterson's mentoring angle was different than what I suspected. Peterson said that every pastor needs a mentor. 
And I would say that every Christian needs a mentor as well. And it's not that we need to mentor somebody else. He's saying that we need to be mentored. And the way he talks about it is this. Mentors pop up into your life unexpectedly. These are the kinds of people that you come across that they have no idea that they are actually a mentor in your life. Mentors, he says, speak words of truth and accountability and redemption, and they speak healing into your life. These are the people that point you in the right direction. He says that mentors are the ones that are sent by God, and and the mentor might not even understand or know that he or she was a mentor. There was a mentor in my life that first year I was here. His name was D. Beck. I I couldn't Google him. I tried. So I took a picture of uh, a very old picture that was of his uh, brochure as funeral. D had no idea he was my mentor. In 2008, he died of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, at age 66. And, 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 and there were not two more unlikely friends in the world than D and myself. He was straight-laced, buttoned up, old school. I was in my 20s, thought of myself as new school, cutting edge, in touch. The truth be told, that's never been me, but I thought of myself that way. (laughs) I remember I was a youth pastor, and I needed somebody to help me build a sound booth for the youth room uh, in the the youth building of the church that I was serving, and and somebody said, you need to call D. So I called D, and he said, I can help you. Come pick me up, and we'll drive to Home Depot together, and we'll buy some supplies. And then D, uh, he, he, he built this amazing sound booth in his shop. He had this amazing shop on the back of his house. It had, an, it had an amazing two-story wood shop behind his house where he did the most unbelievable carpentry. And, and before, so I, I set an appointment with D. We're going to Home Depot. Before I left to pick D up, I was in my office, and a parent called me. This is a parent that I did not know, but this parent called me and chewed me out for something I didn't do. I mean, I didn't even get a word in. That parent let me have it. I had no idea who this parent was. I didn't know what I had done. But but when the guy said he was going to call my boss, Louis McLean, I took his name down. I wrote it on a piece of paper. Not because I was interested in solving the problem that he was presenting to me, but I wrote it down on a piece of paper because I was also writing it down on my heart. I was going to remember this guy. His name was a name I was not going to forget. I remember, 27 years old, thinking to myself, there's going to be a time when he's going to get his. I mean, I thought, this my, I am going to remember that guy's name. I mean, I buried it deep. I knew it was wrong, but I was mad, and I was going to bury that so deep for a time that would not be forgotten, and I was going to reveal it the time that was going to satisfy my revenge. Well, that guy hung up the phone, and of course, I slammed down the phone on the cradle as well. And I looked at the clock, and it was time to pick up D to go to Home Depot. So I grabbed my jacket, and I walked out of the office because it was time to pick him up. And I drove down the road trying to cool myself off until I picked him up. And then I picked him up, and there he sat in the passenger seat next to me. 
I did my best to shield what had just happened to me. I made some small talk. You people know that's not what I'm very good at, but I tried my best. It's always painful. I tried to ask some shallow questions. And then do you know what D said to me? Out of the blue, he looked at me and he said, you know, he who angers you controls you. I, I mean, I almost fell over. It was a prophetic, it was a prophetic word. I had, he had no idea what I had been through. I'm telling you, I shielded it well. He spoke grace into me, and it, in a moment, it changed me. And I think it saved me. D was a huge OU football fan. He would have been thrilled by yesterday. In fact, he built his house to have this, it had this massive living room, and he had like 15 lazy boy chairs in the living room. I'm not joking. I counted 15 one time, and he'd invite all people to come over of all ages to come over and watch the game. He loved the Chili Riano at Chilino's Mexican restaurant, and he loved the band The Eagles. And as straight-laced as he was, his favorite album was When Hell Freezes Over. He listened to it all the time. And each week, since that first week he spoke that truth into my life, Dee and I met for prayer. We met also with our friend Warren Rogers. And the three of us together talked about our families, we talked about our lives, we talked about our church. Every week, every week, Dee would talk about this relationship that he had with God. And after three years of praying with Dee, I, 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 I began to think that while he liked these things, there were some things that were even more important to him. Dee was incredibly passionate about his hobbies. Most of the time when I would call him, he was out in his shop working. He took great pride in the work that he would do for people. There were always projects, always projects on his list that he kept, that he kept on yellow pages. And they looked like this. They were, they were all over. He, I, I've got, in fact, I've got one of his lists right here. He, he took great pride in, in doing his work and, and to take notes on his yellow pages. And then he would, offer to, uh, he would offer his work to people for free. And he especially enjoyed doing work for me and the youth ministry at our church. He loved music. He sang. He was really put off by bad music. He loved his wife. He met Pat in 1960 in college, and, and Dee said he was always a shy person. And he was caught off guard one day when the girl working the bread table in the cafeteria smiled at him. And he thought he, 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 thought he was some, somebody special, but he didn't realize that Pat actually smiled at everyone. But it gave him the boldness to go and, uh, and, and to... He, and to ask her out, he said he was, she was standing outside of class with six other girls, and he pushed through them, and he went and asked them for a date. And the rest was history. And they were, married for, they were married for 45 years. He was passionate about his daughter. He talked about her all the time. There were pictures all over his office, uh, pictures of her graduation and her growing up years and her marriage. But he was passionate I can't express it to you. He was passionate about this relationship that he had with God. He grew up in a a church in Carlsbad, New Mexico, where this guy named Bernard Howe actually invested in him and 
uh, he made a huge impact on, on Dee's life when he was a kid. His dad had died when he was three. But it was in 1992 when, when Dee had a significant encounter with God that, that changed his life forever. He said something sweet happened to him on that day. And Dee told me once that it was on that day that real Real transformation happened. Sanctification is the way the Bible describes it. But for D, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't an end. It was, he said it was the beginning of something that was great. And from that day forward in 1992, D kept detailed journals describing the depth of sweet relationship, is how he describes it, the depth of sweet relationship that he has with God. Each day, he did his devotions at the same time. He did them at the same place. He was incredibly sensitive to the Spirit of God speaking to him. And he would often ask me how I was doing with God and had I heard from God in recent days. On the week of his funeral, now remember, he's, he has ALS. He's died of ALS. His wife, Pat, allowed me to go sit in his office and rummage through his stuff and take notes of things that I was noticing around the office as I was preparing his funeral service for him. And on his desk, I saw this note that he had written, that he had written with ALS, even though his arms didn't work that well. Lord, speak to Watson. That's my son. He was six. We'll listen and hear and obey. You know, I, you can imagine that's meaningful and something that I've hold, held on to. Now, this Second Timothy passage is one that um, I read at Dee's funeral, and, and you might say that this is a strange passage to read at a funeral service. It, it sounds more like a passage that should be read at like an ordination service. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, rebuke and encourage Keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, uh, do the work of an evangelist, discharge, the, discharge all the duties of your ministry. These sounds like, this sounds like words that are being called upon, that are being placed upon a person who is like getting ready to start pastoral, vocational pastoral ministry. But they're super appropriate for D. D was raised by his mother, and when he was three years old, his father passed away. And when his father passed away, he was a Nazarene pastor. And all through his childhood and his teen years, he was told by his mother that he was called to be a pastor. He was called to go to a Christian college. He was called to major in religion. He was called to come back after he majored in religion and go, to Car- uh, go to, back to Carlsbad and, and take his father's position as a pastor. And so Dee did exactly what his mother told him to do. He came to Oklahoma City in 1960. He rolled in school in a Christian college. And in his first year of his freshman year, he slept on the back porch of a family paying $12 a week. He did his studies. He tried to write sermons. At one point, he did pulpit supply. He even pastored a small church for a while. And this is the crazy part. He hated every single minute of it. Dee absolutely hated it. Then in their first year of marriage, Pat and Dee were driving through Denton, Texas, and they decided to visit Pat's uncle. His name was A.F. Daniel. He was a retired pastor in the nursing home. And after spending a few minutes with spending a few minutes listening to Dee's story and Dee's struggles about becoming a pastor, Reverend Daniels told him this story. He said, Dee, 
There was a farmer who was plowing his fields and he was praying for the Lord's will for his life when he had this vision. And in the vision, he saw the letters G, P, C, and the farmer saw immediately, go preach Christ. So the farmer jumps off of his tractor, heads into his house to tell his wife that they were now selling the farm immediately and they were going to go into ministry But it wasn't a success. After several years of serving in small churches, struggling to put together sermons, conducting weddings and funerals, and on and on and on, carrying out the other task of ministry, and never experiencing any kind of success, the young pastor was in prayer again, asking for God's will when he saw a vision. And in his vision, he saw the letters G, P, C. Only this time he knew that meant, go plant corn. And D, in that moment, at the end of his senior year, with his major almost finished, went to school, changed his major to business, and he felt freedom like he's like, like he's never been expected, he never experienced before. But the Lord is really funny, and this is why, because, and this is what D would say, the Lord is funny because everybody who knew D knew that he was in ministry. When he died, I remember talking to his daughter, and I said, what did he like to do when you all went on vacation together? She told me that his favorite thing was to like go down to Broken Bow, and he would work on the farm there, and then they'd do some bass fishing, and when, when they, she was young, they would go fishing together, and she would hang out with Dee as he fished, and on one occasion, Dee had no luck fishing. They fished for hours. They had been out there forever. He had been out there fishing, going, walking up and down the river, working the bank on both sides. And, and at one point, he said, this is my last cast. And he cast his line only, he cast his line out only to get it caught on a tree. And as the bait dangled over the water, a huge fish came jumping out of the water and grabbed the bait. And D reeled in the fish, but not until he had like drug it through all the tree branches and pulled it in. And his way of fishing was unusual. D fished in unusual ways, and his ministry was unusual as, as well. As a disciple of Jesus, D, D talked about fishing for men and women in most unusual places. Here he was. You can see his picture. He, he, this is when he looked young. Not exactly the picture of youthfulness, but he loved working with young people. He spent many of his years working with teenagers in local youth ministries. He took kids on trips and tours. And when I was a youth pastor, he was a significant member of my volunteer youth ministry team. He would stand at the door and greet kids as they came into youth group. And he could not remember a kid's name if his life depended on it. But he could remember their faces. And he learned really quickly who could afford to eat at our snack shack. We served dinner. Who could afford to eat and who could not? He figured out who had money and who did not have money. And he would hand me money so that kids could eat. And we made coupons with his face on it. We called them D dollars to give to those kids who were hungry. Then he would sit in the youth ministry room with his Bible in one hand and the attendance list in the other. And he would pray for all the students that were at our church. He prayed for them one by one. He had men's groups at his house and on a number of occasions. When, when a kid would get into trouble, he would, I would contact him about community service that was needed. 
And he, he was always working on a project, and so he would sponsor the kid, and he would have that kid come to a shop, and he would, with intention, teach that kid a trade. And he would talk to them about the Lord and how to make decisions to get their lives back on track. And as a result of his ministry, his unusual, his un, unusual fishing, many, many, many people came to faith. At one point, he worked for the, he, at one point, he worked for this woman who, in her words, she told him this, she hated men. So she gave D his own office, not because she liked him, but because she wanted him out of the way, and she would give him nothing to work on. So he would sit there, and day by day, he would read his Bible, and he would write in his journal. And one day, the Lord spoke to D, as he said, happened all the time, and he said, I want you to go into your boss's office, and I want you to pray for her. But he, you know, he said he resisted the prompting at first, but then went in in obedience, and he walked into her office. It was the first time he had ever been in there, and he immediately sees a picture of a young boy there on her desk, and he motions to it and asks, it, asks her if it was her son. She said yes, and then she proceeded to tell him a story about how, uh, how she hated his dad, how his dad was no good, that she thought that his dad didn't even deserve to live. And then she said that boy was the only thing that came out, the only good thing that came out of that marriage. Then Dee asked her if he could pray for her. He did. He said a short prayer. Then he went back to his desk. Well, the next day, the boss held this staff meeting, and for the first time ever, she requested Dee's presence. And there at that first staff meeting that he was ever invited to, he's sitting with a, a table full of other women, and his boss announces, this is D. If you need anything, D will pray for you. And from that point forward, person after person, for the time he worked there, came to D's office, coming to request prayer. And during that time, D was introducing people to Jesus. His fishing was unusual. It, he was not called in a in a traditional sense, but it was obvious that he was called to ministry. At one point, he was an auditor for the state of Oklahoma, and he spent a lot of time in the car traveling. One time, uh, he was in his quiet time preparing, uh, and he felt a prompting from the Lord to go to the local Nazarene church in whatever town he was in and stop and pray for the pastor there. And he said, I was very nervous when I did this, but he would go, and he would go into the office, he would introduce himself, and he would tell the, the pastor that the Lord had sent him there, and he'd sent him to, he had sent him to pray, and usually the pastor would act surprised, but then he would allow Dee to pray, and then Dee said the Spirit of God would move in. And all of a sudden, pastors are confessing their sins, and there are these struggles that were being revealed, and and Dee would pray for them, and hope were stored, and, and God's work was done because Dee was obedient. And what was fascinating is that Dee said as soon as he would leave, the Lord took away whatever, whatever, was, said in that, whatever was said in confidence that day. His, he had a ministry, and his fishing was unusual. His ministry was unusual. And here we have this this command from Paul, St. Paul to St. Timothy. And the thing that I've learned is it is not just for those who are preparing for pastoral vocational ministry. Paul's command is, is for those who find themselves in joy. And they understand joy. They talk about their relationship with God as something sweet. Uh, Paul's command is for those who understand this joy. 
that comes in walking with Jesus. It's a joy that he described that I got to see in him that is hard for me to describe from time to time. And it is a joy that the world has a hard time knowing. D, it was very real. Knew that joy. And he just wanted to share it with others. And this command of Paul to Timothy is a command to all of us who find ourselves in step with God's Spirit. This is what D wanted. Uh, one of D's favorite hymns was a hymn called uh, Near My God to Thee, and I wanted, I wanted Cassie and Holly to sing it for us. And so um, listen to it, but if you know it, I invite you to sing it as well. story. And there was no room in either Dee's theology or his life for saved, sanctified, and then petrified. He had no interest in that. He had some, he, he understood and had a real experience of what he enjoyed, but could not be bottled up, but was to be shared with everybody he knew. Each day he talked about a pursuit of walking closer with Christ. Each week we met, he wanted to know how I was pursuing it. Each moment, he was about unusual fishing. About eight weeks before his death, when he was so sick and he was suffering, I asked him, I said, Dee, what are you looking forward to? And he gazed up, and it was like he looked past me, as if he could see something that I could not. He, he told me that he was anxious to meet his dad. He hadn't known him since he was three. He had only known him in stories. He told me that he was looking forward to being reunited with his mother. 
But the thing that he spoke of was something that seemed already familiar to him. It, it, he wanted to see the Jesus that he had talked to so often and talked about so often. As I flipped through Dee's Bible preparing um, for his funeral, uh, thinking about his life and the suffering that he went through at the end, I found this passage bookmarked and highlighted. And it, it, it's this passage. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. and The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will always will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all the saints who have longed for his appearing. I tell you this story um, so that he won't be forgotten, but not just so that he won't be forgotten, but, but so those who didn't even know that they were mentors in, in your life could be remembered. Much of what Jesus has to say is about not forgetting. He says all the time, do not forget and I think this is because the, in these stories of others, our stories are rescripted. And if you're like me, you need your story to be rescripted just as badly as I do. The last time I saw Dee alive, I offered him communion. And I wanted him to know that, uh, that the Christ in his last days, which were the worst, was just as real and present as he was in Dee's best days. And I want you to know this as well. So I want to invite you to this table. I want, to re re I want to invite you to remember the story that is this table. John Wesley, who we talked about last week, believed that the Lord's Supper was the great channel whereby the grace of the Spirit of God was conveyed to all the souls of the saints. The table of our Lord is the way we practice these stories and the stories of the apostles, and the stories of the saints, and the story of Jesus into our own lives. So do not forget that Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, took the bread at dinner, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, do not forget that after supper he took the cup, and he held it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you do this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. This is an open table here at our church. And all who are open to having their story rescripted in Christ are welcome. And you are welcome in this community. Everyone who is open to believe in this good work and wants to receive grace that comes from God is welcome to this table. Here is where we live into the good story. So we want no barriers, and I want to let you know, because of that, our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. I ask you to leave the left side of your pew, come down one of the aisles, come and listen to what these servers have to say to you. When you come down the aisle, come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good, that which comes from God. And then when you hear what they have to say, take the, take the bread, dip it in the cup, eat it, and be grateful. When you are ready, you